Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I am super excited that you are here at 9 a.m. If you look around, there are a few more empty seats, so not, uh, not a ton. We did this intentionally, okay? Uh, we, as a church, a city light church, want to be a light to our city. And what happened in our first two weeks was every seat was filled. This is what we prayed for. God was good. Uh, but it's hard to be on mission to people when you invite them to church and there's no place for them, right? So we went to two services so that the place would not be packed, so that there would be empty seats. It seems counterintuitive, but it's intentional. If there's an empty seat next to you, we one day want to see that filled with somebody who once did not know Jesus, but because of your impact in their life, because of the spirit moving, because of the word preached and worshiping him, they know Jesus and love him and serve him. So there are empty seats for a reason. Uh, let's fill them up. Let's yeah. pray that God will do that, okay? Uh, I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited to dig into God's word today. So let's get started. I want to start with a question. Um, have you ever been lost? I don't know if you got bad directions or your cell phone died. Uh, I don't know what happened, but have you ever been lost? Um, when I was a freshman in college, I went, I uh, started at a place called Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Anybody ever been to Decorah? Not at all. A couple? I've never been there, okay? Beautiful part of the state. I've never been there. Uh, one time we visited before I got dropped off. Um, so I got dropped off from school in a place that I did not know. And a couple weeks into the first semester, I found out a couple of my friends were playing volleyball in Dubuque. That's a couple hour drive from Decorah. Uh, I thought, you know what, I should go see the volleyball game, support some friends. And uh, this was the days before cell phones, um, before GPS. Uh, believe it or not, I was in college before GPS, all right? Uh, and so what do you do? You don't have a cell phone or a little tom-tom in your car. In those days, it was after the maps from the gas station, or the, the rest stops, okay? I jumped on my desktop with my 40-pound monitor, and, and I looked up MapQuest, you know MapQuest, and I said, how do you get directions from Decorah to Dubuque? And uh, pulled them up, and I thought, you know what? I could print these, but I don't have much money, and this takes ink and paper. I'm going to need those for papers to turn in later. I'm just going to etch these directions into my brain. I uh, can see where this story's going. So, MapQuest in my brain. I jump in my car. I hit you can buy God's grace. I get there a couple hours later. He's the university just fine. There, you know, on the way in, they tell you how to get to the university. Um, so I got there, saw the game, hung out with my friends, good job, grabbed my seat, jump back in my car, and uh, go to head back to Decorah. And surprisingly, on the way into the view, it tells you how to get to the university. On the way out, it does not tell you how to get to the quarter. Right? <laughs> and I had gone somewhere to eat, and so I didn't know where I was in the city. I'd never been there, but I think, I can figure this out. I'm a college student now. And so I hop on the road. I have no idea where I'm going. I find a highway, and uh, I'm trucking along, and all of a sudden, there's, a, there's an exit coming up. And one is Highway 52 North, and one is Highway 61 North. And I don't know which one to take. 52 and 61. 
61, they both add up to 7 if you have the number. 6 is close to 5, 1 is close to 2. They both say north. Can I make a bad decision here? Uh, probably, or there wouldn't be two highways, right? So 60 miles an hour, the signs are flying by, last minute, ah, to the right, 61. I'm confident for a moment. But then I see a river coming up, and I'm like, I didn't cross the river on the way here. I shouldn't be crossing all the way back. I get across the river, and there's a big sign that says, Welcome in the shape of Wisconsin. I have no clue where I am. I didn't even know I was this close to Wisconsin. How could I possibly have gotten this far off track? I was lost, right? Have you ever been there? You've been lost. It's an unsettling feeling to not know where you are or how to get back to where you want to be. Right? In the Bible, Jesus talks about lost people. But he does it a little differently than I just did. Jesus isn't talking about people who don't know where they're at physically. He's talking about people who don't know where they are spiritually. Okay, so we're in the middle of a sermon series called Jesus Saves. And today he's going to talk about saving lost people. Um, so here's where we're going. This is an outline, only two points today. Jesus saves for his joy, and Jesus saves for our joy. All right? Jesus saves for his joy. Jesus saves for our joy. Now we're going to start out in Luke 15. You heard it read. Just like the last couple weeks, Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees show up. You remember who these guys are? They're the self-righteous, religious rule followers, and it seems like every time Jesus is teaching and these guys show up, the whole point of them being there is for them to catch Jesus breaking a rule. They want to trick him, they want to con him, they want to catch him, and they want him to be a rule breaker just like they are. And today they're up to the same old thing. Okay? So let's dive in. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They grumbled. This guy is receiving sinners and eating with them. Why would they grumble about that? See, the Pharisees, they are so committed to not ever breaking a rule that they refuse to even eat with a rule breaker. See, their thought process was following the rules makes a person clean, and breaking the rules makes a person unclean. So track with me. A dirty person and a clean person hug. What happens? Does the dirty person get clean, or does the clean person get dirty? Clean's not even a word, right? It doesn't happen. By nature, you have to work hard to get clean and stay clean. You get dirty just because you live in a dirty world. And so the Pharisees, they think, if we hang out with dirty people, we will get dirty. So we refuse to spend any time with them at all. They reject sinners. Okay? Um, I think if we're honest, we all have a little bit of Pharisee in us. No? 
We do the same kind of thing. Uh, think about your kids. When you say who they should be friends with, choose your friends what? Wisely. We want your kids to hang out with good kids because good kids will encourage them to be good. Don't hang out with bad kids because bad kids will encourage you to be bad. If you're moving into a new neighborhood, you look at things like the crime rate and the poverty rate. You might look at the schools. What's the graduation rate? How do your students perform? Why do we look at all that stuff? Because we want to move into a neighborhood with good people, not bad people. Right? Uh, even in my own life. Just a couple weeks ago, I got to go to a conference with the two guys that were playing the church in Lincoln. And uh, if you stayed in the hotel with a roommate, they would pay for your room 100%. Do it for free. So the Lincoln guys decided to bunk together, and I had to choose am I going to stay with a randomly selected roommate, or am I going to pay for myself? Hesitantly, I said, sign me up for somebody. And immediately afterwards, I started getting concerned, right? Is this guy going to snore? Is going to sweaty? It smells funny? Is he going to underwear on the bathroom floor? Is he going to flush the toilet? Right? Like, the whole time I'm thinking, am I going to get a dirty dude? Um, <laughs> as chance would have it, I think, actually, truth be told, I forgot to flush the toilet. Don't judge me, right? Why don't you do the best of us? I'm going to be the dirty guy. Um, where am I going with this? Uh, I was so concerned that I wouldn't have to stay with a dirty roommate, right? That I just had no concept that staying with somebody that I didn't know, someone who might not be like me, might be good to me, right? I think we all have a little bit of Pharisee in us. We all do this. Clean, right? We don't associate one with the other. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus here. He receives sinners and eats with them. They're saying, look, Jesus, if you're a teacher of the law, you ought to be clean like the law teaches. And if you hang out with these unclean, dirty people, you're flirting with dirtiness yourself. You're about to get dirty. And Jesus changes the paradigm. Okay, he says, hey Pharisees, you're seeing the world through the lens of clean and unclean, but I want to change the whole lens. I look at the world in terms of lost and found. Okay? He responds to their grumbling by telling three stories. The Bible calls them parables. Doug read two of them earlier. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the third one is the parable of the lost or the prodigal son. Okay, there's context to these three uh, stories. Let me summarize them for you very briefly. The parable of the lost sheep. There's a shepherd who loses his sheep, then finds it and rejoices. Okay, parable of the lost coin. There's a woman who loses a coin, then finds it and rejoices. The parable of the lost son. There's a father who loses a son, then finds him and rejoices. Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. Those sinners are unclean. We're clean. Don't do that. Jesus tells three stories that give a real-life example of a new paradigm. He says, hey, Pharisees, in real life, what happens when you find something that you've lost? You rejoice. 
choice, right? You know this. They apply to us today. Uh, my grandpa is a farmer. You're a farmer? You have livestock? What happens when the cows get out? I remember when I was at my grandpa's house, and a few times the cows got out. I don't know if he just wasn't good at keeping strong fences or if his cows were crafty, but several times, right? I had to help when the cows got out. He's a good farmer. He's not here. That's not fair. Uh, but if the cows got out, you drop everything. Whatever you're doing, you stop and you go to where the cows are and you work to get them back in until they're all in. Right? You drop everything, you go work so that what is lost can be found. You fix the fence, you count hens until you know that they're all there. And when they're all there and the fence is fixed, what do you do? You rejoice, you celebrate, there's a sigh of relief. What was out is now in. What was lost or could have been lost is now found, right? This is not some random story. We experience this. The same kind of thing, parable of lost coin. What happens um, when you take your winter coat out of storage, right? It's been packed up all spring and summer and fall. You pull it out of storage when the weather gets cool. Is there anything like me? First thing you do is try to see if it still fits, right? Because though I haven't grown high, I've grown wider all the time, right? So does this still fit? Once you get it on, I stick my hands in my pockets. What is there? What might have been lost for three seasons that I found? The best years are the ones where it's money in the pocket, right? If I find a $10 bill, this is not going into the savings account, right? I'm celebrating. We're going out for ice cream. What was lost is found. The same thing happened for the woman. She lost her coin. She searched for it. When she found it, she rejoiced. Something that was lost is found. Parents, what's it like when your kids are gone? They're either staying by, friends or family. They got off to college. Maybe you went on a business trip. What's it like when you separate? They're all lost some. When the people who you love are not around you, a part of you is lost, right? And when they get back, and you get back, and they come home to visit, what's that feel like? The part of you that was lost is found. And if you like me, it's hugs and kisses, and I like this. The relationship is restored, and everybody rejoices. Jesus tells three stories. To these, to these Pharisees to highlight a part of a common human experience. He's saying, Pharisees, don't you realize that when you've lost something and you find it, there's reason to celebrate. I want you to look at the text with me. Because it's not just a shepherd, it's not just a woman, it's not just the dad that rejoices, okay? After each parable, uh, after the first one, lost sheep, uh, Luke 15, verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. After the parable of the lost coin, verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And after the parable of the lost son, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad 
For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You want to know something? When lost people get saved, Jesus rejoices. He's telling the Pharisees, you're looking at lost, or you're looking at clean and unclean. I'm looking at lost and found. And when I find what was lost, I celebrate. There's joy in all of heaven before all the angels of God. We celebrate when the lost are found. Jesus celebrates for his joy. Do you believe that? Can you believe that heaven celebrates when the lost are found? But the Pharisees say clean and unclean. Jesus says lost and found. I want to dwell here for just a minute because this is radical. The Pharisees, they had no paradigm for this. Jesus says that all of heaven rejoices when the lost are found. Consider your own sin for just a moment. Are you lost? Consider all the ways that you've rebelled against your creator. In thought, the things that you've thought, the ways that you've used your body, the ways that you've given your heart, the things not associated with him. Think of all the ways that you've used your life to walk away from God, doing things that you know full well aren't in line with his will for your life. Consider your sin for a moment and your lostness. When you think about God seeing that sin in you, what does God look Does he look like a judge who, as the gavel falls, is just as likely to condemn you as acquit you? Or does he look like a father with tears in his eyes, lovingly awaiting his lost child to return home? What does God look like? Do you believe that when you repent of your sin, when the lost are found, that all of heaven will rejoice? This should change the way that you feel about Jesus. He loves to save the lost. It brings him joy. See, I don't want to be a church that believes that about our God. Okay. The good news is Jesus doesn't just stop there. Okay? Jesus is not kind of some selfish God that says this Joy is for me. I do what brings me joy at your expense. Okay? Here's our points. Jesus saves for his joy, and Jesus saves for our joy. We have something too, okay? The, the parables that he told were stories. They were uh, they were not real uh, things that had happened. There are stories to highlight the human condition to teach us truth. Just a few chapters later, uh, we encounter a real story, and I want to read that with you. Let's look at Luke 19 together. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the drought, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Let's address the obvious first. 
that Hughes and I have something in common, okay? The Bible says in small stature, the old Sunday school song says he's a wee little man, okay? Call him what you want to call it, he's a little guy. So am I, so I can relate. Okay, but this little guy made it big. He was a chief tax collector. All right, I want to tell you something. George W. Bush, former president, my height. Okay? You know Tom Cruise, you've heard of this guy? Shorter than me. All right? I love it when little guys make it big. There's just something to me that rejoices. Okay? Because that doesn't happen all the time. Zacchaeus was that kind of guy. He was a chief tax collector. Okay? And this was a, financially speaking, a really good job. Tax collectors made bank in those days. And so Zacchaeus is doing well. Little guy makes it big. But there's a trade-off to this job. Okay? When you're a tax collector, you make a lot of money, but the way you make it is a little sketchy. Okay? People hate you for it. This is what would happen. There's no checkbooks, there's no PayPal, so you got to pay in cash, and the tax collectors would go around knowing how much people owed, and they would add to it. You owe, instead of whatever, $100, 120 Then they skim all that money off the top before they turn into collection. A lucrative career, but everybody hates you because they know what you do. There's no recourse. So Zacchaeus, he's a rich little guy, but you don't walk up to this little guy and say, he's so cute, or he's so sweet, right? He's, he's a con, and he's cheated the people he's supposed to be serving for years. He's a dirty man. And the Bible says... That Jesus was passing through his town, and for some reason, Zacchaeus went to see who Jesus was. This dirty tax collector, a con and a cheat, hears Jesus is coming to town. I'm going to go see who he is. And so he goes out to where Jesus is going to be. If you're short like me, you can relate to his predicament. He gets to the crowd. And all the tall people have gathered up front, and he got boxed out, right? This is not fair. Tall people, this happens, okay? You need to be aware there are short people in the world, and they can't see through you. So give them a bit of a break uh, when you're in the crowd. Zacchaeus gets in the crowd, and this has happened. He can't see Jesus, but he's crafty. This guy has made a living cheating, and so uh, he may not be the biggest dog in a fight, but he's scrappy, and it's a little unpredictable, right? Sometimes it's not the size of the dog you fight, it's the size of the fight the dog. And Zacchaeus is like, I'm not letting some tall people stay in my way. <laughs> All right, so he goes down the path where Jesus is heading. He climbs a tree so he can see. And once he gets up in the tree, uh, the story continues. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay in the house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Let me tell you something. A short guy doesn't climb a tree so he can be seen. It's embarrassing when you can't see over the top of people. You don't climb a tree to be seen. You climb a tree so that you can see. I would highly doubt Zacchaeus intends on being seen in the truth, on being called out by Jesus. Because you see, Zacchaeus being a tax collector, it's kind of like the compliance department at work, right? 
Those guys come to your desk and cringe. What did I do wrong this time? What hoop can I not jump through? How are you going to catch me? Right? When the tax collector comes, am I delinquent? What are you going to demand of me now? You turn and run. Zacchaeus gets in a crowd. You almost don't want to be seen because you don't want to be rejected. And so he climbs up in a tree not to be seen, but to see. And Jesus walks by and he looks up and he sees a little guy in a tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, you come down. So I'm going to stay at your place. A righteous religious teacher and a cheat con tax collector are like oil and water. They don't mix. Zacchaeus wasn't supposed to be seen. Jesus wasn't supposed to invite himself into that house. Zacchaeus is supposed to be rejected and blocked out and run from. But Jesus goes to him and says, I'm going to stay with you tonight. And what did the Bible say? He hurried down. Short guys don't jump out of trees. That's a long fall. Okay? You can get hurt. Short guys hurry down the tree. And then Zacchaeus received him joyfully. Even though he was dirty and Jesus was clean, he received him joyfully because it wasn't supposed to happen. Clean people weren't supposed to be And it wasn't a bad experience. He rejoiced. The Pharisees said, clean and unclean, guilty and acquitted. They say, we hang out with these people, we reject these people. Jesus said, no, 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 lost and found. I go to save the lost because I get joy. And when Jesus invited himself into Zacchaeus, world, Zacchaeus received it joyfully. And I want to point out what he did, because this is even more miraculous. What did Zacchaeus do when Jesus invited him? Or when Jesus invited himself in? What was his response? Chapter 19, verse uh, 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What did, Jesus, what did Zacchaeus do when Jesus entered in? He repented. He turned from his former ways. The dirty was made clean. This is a wealthy man, and in the light of Jesus Christ, he says, I'm going to give away half of everything. My 401k, my IRA, my savings account, my checking account, cash in the bed, whatever it is, half of it I give away to the poor. And on top of that, whoever I've stolen from, I want to make it right as best I can. And so I'm going to count the cost. What did I steal? And whatever I stole, I'm giving back to each victim four times. Who knows if you have anything left? In the light of Jesus Christ, Zacchaeus repented. He gave away what his life had been all about. He became despised to the world so that he could pursue riches. And when Jesus didn't despise him but loved him, he gave up 
all of what he pursued so that he can have Jesus in joy. Jesus saves us for his joy and for our joy. This is how Jesus described it. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. I came to seek and save the lost. He knew that he is needed to save. He didn't dismiss clean and unclean. He knew that unclean sinners are lost in sin, unable to become clean on their own. It's just unlike the Pharisees, he didn't leave them there. He didn't reject them there. He entered in. He invited himself in. The people who the Pharisees didn't want to see, Jesus saw. When the clean avoid the unclean, the dirty stay there. And Jesus changed the whole paradigm. The clean man embraced the unclean sinner. That he is in something amazing happened. That he is that clean. Right? The dirty was made clean in joy. Alright? Jesus saves for his joy and for our joy. And I want to tell you, this is not just something that happened in the Bible. It's not something that just happened years and years ago. It's still happening today. Even in our early, young, little church plant, there are stories of Jesus saving. I want to tell you just a couple. Okay? Um, Annabelle is a young girl. Okay? And she's part of our church. Her family's part of our church. And at City Group one night, the adults are off talking about Jesus eating together. The kids are supposed to be playing in the other room. And while they're playing, Annabelle's cousin starts talking to her about Jesus. Okay? Kids discipling kids. It's beautiful. Start talking to her about Jesus. And the spirit moved in Annabelle's little heart as her cousin described how Jesus saves, and she became a believer that night. Okay? Kids discipling kids. Jesus saving. And just a few weeks ago, Annabelle got baptized. And before she got baptized, she was asked, Annabelle, why are you getting baptized today? You know what she did? She got a huge smile on her face, and she leaned up to the microphone, and she said, I'm getting baptized because I love Jesus. Yeah. And the joy on her face reflected the joy in her heart. It was awesome. The testimony of a little girl. That Jesus saved for his joy and for her joy. For our joy, right? Amen. There's another guy named Chris. Chris is the kind of guy who went to church because he loved his wife, not because he loved Jesus. Okay? Not the best reason to go to church, but there's something there. He was going. Okay? Fast forward a few months. He and his wife are both getting back. And then he decides, you know what? I'm going to be a part of this church plant. I'm going to count the bluffs. And so we asked him, Chris, what is that? Why would you do that? What, what draws you to be part of a church plant here? And he said, if you would have told me a couple of years ago that I would one day become a Christian, I would have punched you. <laughs> but Jesus changed my heart, and now I want to be part of a church plant so that other people can be changed. What a testimony, right? This guy goes from punching people in anger to spreading the gospel in joy. The story goes on. I started meeting with him over lunch to read the Bible, to talk about what life is like following Jesus. And 
But Chris, just last week, we got the opportunity to meet God from the open world mission. We have through the same, except this God from the mission hasn't met Jesus yet. He doesn't know him. And so Chris went from being a guy who got lunch bought for him as you opened the Bible to being the guy who bought coffee for an unbeliever. He said, hey, tell me about your story. Let me tell you about mine. And then a guy with very little knowledge of any of Scripture opened up to John 8, where Doug had preached last week, and talked to this man about the gospel of Jesus. He went from punching somebody who would tell him the gospel to preaching the gospel in joy. Afterwards, he called me. He could hardly contain himself. He was so excited about what had happened. Folks, Jesus saves for his joy and for our joy. There are empty seats in this room because we want that story to be told time and time and time again. Jesus still moves. And we love to tell those stories. The last couple of weeks, we've had something come up. Um, we've heard from Jeff and Amy, and this week we want to do that again. And so, Chuck, do you want to come up and tell us your story? Why did Jesus say Come on, Chuck. Good. Um, I always thought my story was pretty, pretty vanilla, pretty plain, not much excitement to it. Uh, my biological dad, my mom, her name is Barb, and my biological dad's name is Chuck. What Chuck? Uh, he was not the nicest man in the world. He was a white beater and not alcoholic. Um, and over time, you know, my mom decided that that, that wasn't going to work out real well for her. And so she, uh, they got a divorce, and my brothers and sisters, uh, we were kind of split as a family. Eventually, she remarried a man by the name of Bob Kaiser. And Bob, uh, he's my stepdaddy, adopted me when I was like probably nine or ten years old. Um, we value things like uh, hard work, um, success, performance, and things that were valued in the Kaiser house. And so that's kind of what I've had in my life after, uh, through my late, you know, early teen and late teen years. And so those things were important to us. Um, the fact that Jesus changed his family trees is very, very evident in our life. Um, when I was 13 years old, 13, 14 years old, a guy by the name of Carl Southern, he invited me to a Nazarene youth camp. I hadn't gone to you know, church camping for it, didn't really know anything about it. The only reason my mom and dad would send us to church is uh, kind of have some time with themselves and we'd go to the lake house. So this uh, Nazarene youth camp I went, and I remember uh, I think it was the last night of the um, of the you know, chapel night, and it was the very last service. And I remember the preacher, I don't know who he was, but he remember what he preached about. And I remember him saying, okay, folks, this is the last opportunity you're going to have uh, this week, and if you don't know, accept Jesus Christ in your life, uh, now's the time to do it. So I remember standing with my fingers gripped on the pew in front of me, and uh, something, I decided to walk down this aisle, and uh, there was nobody, everybody was standing in their pews, and I just remember walking down the aisle and kneeling in the front, and for whatever reason, uh, I... I began to cry and weep, and it was at that moment I believed that Jesus Christ entered into my life and changed my 
hard forever. And there was lots of joy. There was uh, much joy that came into my life as a result of that. Um, a few years later, I surrendered my life to, to go into full-time ministry. And so that became a real dream of, of mine. I went to Bible college to, to pursue that. And um, after you know a few years of, of that, we, Jennifer and I, we were already married at the time. And... Um, had to support, you know, a little baby that was on the way, uh, so I dropped out of college there and um, just worked. But God was very gracious. I mean, he had, he had blessed me with a great wife, blessed me with, with a, a child and two children, two other children eventually, and uh, it was a very, very good time. I worked for a Fortune 50 company, making great money uh, without a college degree. So I thought I was in great shape, owned my own business, and uh, but the dream to, um, to pursue ministry and to be in full-time Christian service was um, not realized. I mean, I was just, I, mean, I was always active in church and, and, and teaching and mentoring and those types of things. But as far as becoming a vocational pastor, that is something that wasn't yet realized. So in 2006, I um, we made the move to Kansas City to go to seminary and complete my education so I could pursue ministry. Did that in a little bitty church in this place I'd never heard of before called Iowa, Council Bluffs, Iowa. Um, they invited us to come up and, and um, you know, see if it was a good fit. So uh, it seemed to be a good fit at the time, and we, we moved up here, moved the family up here, and, and it was like, all right, we're, we're, we're doing this, you know, this is something that always dreamed about, something I always wanted. And about a year and a half into this thing, it was a quite, um, it's quite a story. Uh, as it turns out, uh, it, you know, it wasn't the dream I thought it was. And in the midst of that, um, our son, my youngest son, became ill. And he had a very serious uh, disease that he needed chemotherapy for, and um, it was a tough time. So 2010 was a rough year. God led me to Doug, God led me to Eric, and um, lots of people in this room were kind of a part of that time uh, for the Kaisers. And so while it was, while there was much joy in, in Chuck Kaiser's life, at this point in life, I, was a, I felt like a failure vocationally. I felt like a, a failure, you know, in a very parental way, uh, due to the fact that I'm not supposed to protect my kids from this stuff, right? That's something I'm supposed to be able to do. But, um, so, while there wasn't any joy there at that particular time, um, God restored the joy. He kept bringing me back to the fact that, yeah, things are rough, but Chuck, I've redeemed your soul. I've, I've, I've saved you from hell. You are joining me. You got fellowship with, with me. So it kept bringing me back to that. And the fact that, you know, I mentioned earlier how God had uh, changed my family tree. I'm the only believer um, in, in, in our family, um, even amongst you know, some of the aunts and uncles. Um, God changed the family tree for the Kaisers. And I'm so grateful for that. He does. I'm glad he celebrated when I came to know 
Um, but he, he also caused me to celebrate because during the time when things were very dark, I was still able to, he was my anchor, he was my rock, he was my guide. Um, he, was, he was the one that I, I leaned on, he leaned on as a, as a family. So, uh, very vanilla story, very, very plain, but I'm thankful that God has been my life and, and brought me in and, and taught me to God. What I love about Chuck's story is that uh, there's not a huge uh, valley, a huge story of rebellion and redemption. It's just a story of faithfulness over time. God saves him, he believes that, and he lives life in it through eyes and words. And for me, that's an example that I must follow. So thank you, Chuck, for being that kind of man. And thank you for sharing your story.